royal law. This is the first time this mandate is mentioned as the royal law. This quote from Leviticus 19.18 is one of is a passage that is quoted more often than any other passage from the Old Testament. It is applied not only to the Mosaic dispensation and applied to the church age dispensation. Jesus Christ reiterated it and also applied it to the millennial dispensation. So what we see here is that that one of the major issues in dispensation and understanding dispensational theology is that through all of the ages, whether we are looking at an Old Testament dispensation or a New Testament dispensation in terms of the church age, the tribulation, or the millennium, in the Old Testament, whether we are talking about something related to the age of the Gentiles or the age of the Jews, that when you have a principle of Scripture that is emphasized in every single one of these dispensations. It is a principle that has continuity through all dispensations, just as salvation does. One of the errors that people got into or confused about, I think in the early eras of dispensational theology, and I think Schofield contributed to this somewhat by, by some of the things he said in his notes, was indication that there were different ways of salvation between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But salvation has always been the same. It's always by grace through faith. In the Old Testament dispensations, it was in the anticipated fulfillment of the promise of God to provide a Savior. It looked forward to the cross, the provision of God. In the New Testament, it reflects back on the completed, finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So that is a doctrine that is continuous through all dispensations. The doctrines related to personal love for God the Father and impersonal love for all mankind, those mandates continue through all dispensations. And we saw last week that one of the key principles of interpretation in dispensational theology that differentiates dispensational theology from covenant theology is dispensationalism says that unless a principle is reiterated in each dispensation, it is no longer in effect. Covenant theology says that a principle is always in effect unless it is specifically abrogated. And there's a big difference between those two principles and how they play themselves out in the interpretation of Scripture. And we saw that impersonal love for God is this, this mandate that you shall love your neighbor as yourself is uh, stated in Deuteronomy. It is restated by Jesus Christ in his summary of the Mosaic Law in terms of how do you understand the whole law. And Jesus summarized it in two commandments, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which means that you need to have a passion. And I don't mean that in an emotional sense. I mean that in terms of making God the number one priority in your life, learning about God, making doctrine the highest priority in your life. You need to have a passion for that. That doesn't mean going out in crusader arrogance and beating other people over the head with the Bible. It means in terms of your own diligence toward your relationship with God. The church age, it's reiterated here in James chapter 2, and we'll see in Luke chapter 6, which is related to the Sermon on the Mount, and although it has, I believe the Sermon on the Mount has application for today, uh, many believe its primary implication is in the, uh, in, or primary interpretation is for the Millennial Kingdom. But it certainly is not inapplicable for today. So we see that the uh, issue of unconditional impersonal love for all mankind 
has continuity throughout all of the dispensations. Last time we went through Leviticus 19.18 to see how the context defined unconditional love, and I want to review that. We saw that under eight points. That in that chapter, we saw that love for loving your neighbor was uh, defined in terms of leaving something for the deserving poor. Generosity, taking care of those who were poor, those who were destitute, taking care of the widow, taking care of the orphan, taking care of those who could not provide for themselves or sustain themselves, always leaving something in the fields. Um, This might be applied today in business dealings and not trying to squeeze every little dime out of every transaction for yourself, but always leaving something on the table for others so that everybody can can profit from the deal. Point number two, respecting privacy, personal property and truth in verse 11. Privacy is crucial to love for other people. We have to give people the privacy and the freedom to fail. Freedom is definitely related to privacy. We don't need to go around sticking our nose in other people's business unless, of course, they give us the freedom to do that. Uh, that, you know, the closer your relationship is with somebody, the less privacy is there, and that's because it is a mutually uh, decided issue. A person gets into a relationship, and to the degree you have intimacy with them, to the degree that you want to have a friendship with somebody, you lower those privacy bounds. Never all the way. We all need a certain amount of privacy, even in marriage. The two marriage partners need a certain level of private privacy, but the more intimate you become, the less private you are. The more you give up privacy in your relationship. But privacy is crucial to freedom, especially in the realm of spirituality. But in this realm, personal love—I mean, impersonal love or unconditional love for all mankind—relates to respecting their privacy, their personal ownership of property, and dealing with them in integrity. Third, there was a prohibition of perjury in verse 12, which emphasizes, again, truthfulness and integrity. Fourth, rejection of oppression of others, as well as the rejection of unjust wages, treating someone fairly and honestly just as you would want to be treated by someone else. Fifth, respect for all men, even those who were handicapped or disfigured or had physical deformities. Why? Because every human being was initially created in the image of God. In the garden, God created man in his image and likeness so that every human being is an image bearer. Now, after the fall, that image is distorted, but we still possess it. And that's the basis for the sanctity of human life. That is the basis for mandates like, Thou shalt not murder. The New Testament does not say, Thou shalt not kill. It says, Thou shalt not murder. There are certainly valid reasons for taking human life, one of which is capital punishment, another of which is action in the military and warfare. So uh, underlying this mandate is respect for all men, as all men are created in the image and likeness of God. Six was a prohibition of slander, sins of the tongue directed towards those who have offended us or hurt us or insulted us in some way, uh, a prohibition against murder, And then point number eight, uh, a prohibition against mental attitude sins towards others, which means that unconditional love would exclude 
uh, hatred, anger, jealousy, bitterness, any kind of negative mental attitude, sin that was that would be destroy the person engaged in that sin. Your hatred for somebody else doesn't hurt them; it hurts you. Your bitterness doesn't hurt them; it hurts you. And so, if you're going to exercise personal love, it is an absence of mental attitude sins. But in all of those passages, we might say that uh, impersonal love is defined by negation, what is not present. But impersonal love and unconditional love goes beyond simply the absence of mental attitude sins. It is more than simply being able to maintain a relaxed mental attitude toward people who have hurt you, harmed you, rejected you, offended you, insulted you, whether real or imagined. And we see this in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36, and we reviewed that last time. And we saw not only does is there a negative aspect of not having mental attitude sins present, maintaining a relaxed mental attitude, but there are also positive aspects to impersonal love. It is treating the person with honor, treating them with respect, giving to them more than they've asked for, treating them very well, treating them just as you would want to be treated, no matter how badly they have treated you. If we look at this passage, it says, Luke 6.33, or let's go back to, uh, Luke 6.31, which defines the whole concept of impersonal love. And just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the biblical definition. Just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom, you, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. See, that's that positive aspect. It is initiating love in that direction. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will begin and once will be great. And once again we see that inheritance issues are tied in to the use of impersonal love for all mankind as a problem solving device. And then the final mandate is be merciful just as your father is merciful, and there we're going to see the divine pattern. We're going to understand ultimately, if we're going to understand impersonal love for all mankind or unconditional love We have to look to God the Father and His impersonal love to all mankind and see how that is manifested at the cross. That's about where we stopped last time. Let's turn to John 13, 34, and 35 for a mandate given by our Lord the night before He went to the cross. John chapter 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment, a new mandate I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So this is the uh, mandate, a new mandate that Jesus gives to the royal family to love one another. Now again, we have to clarify what we mean by love. 
love is not the romantic, sentimental, superficial, warm, fuzzy feeling that most Americans associate with love. You can't do that. You can't go around having the kind of of emotional feelings, those kind of wonderful, warm feelings you have towards your wife or towards your best friend or someone you know intimately and have known for years, you can't have those same kinds of feelings toward everybody. That's impossible. There may be three or four people in your lifetime that you truly develop deep, serious love for. They may be friends, they may be a spouse, they may be your children, but there won't be very many people who were the uh, true recipients of your personal love. So this is not mandating a personal love because you can't know everybody. In fact, there are going to be many believers you can't know and many that you don't want to know because they are in carnality, they're in reversionism, and they're pretty miserable and you want to stay away as far away from them as possible. But unfortunately, they're in your family or you work with them or they uh, occupy a pew near you and you have to be involved with them to one degree or another. So you have to love them and you have to be involved in, in that relationship. So we have to understand just exactly what that means because otherwise you are going to violate this mandate, lose rewards, lose inheritance, and fail to advance spiritually. Jesus said that this new commandment in verse 35 is going to be the evidence of the believer advancing to spiritual maturity in the church age. He says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Because we are all members of the royal family then, this mandate becomes the royal law because it is associated with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and His family the church, the royal family of God. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then in John fifteen thirteen, we have one more verse to add to the package so that we can understand the biblical parameters for love. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friend. So Jesus says here that sacrifice is the ultimate expression of impersonal love. Not personal love. That's why you go back to Luke 6. Let's sort of modify the text a little bit. If you have sacrificial love for those who are kind and wonderful and pat you on the back all the time and praise you, What credit is that to you? For even sinners have that kind of love for people who treat them well. If you lend to those, and then we go down to the verse 35, but have sacrificial love for your enemies. That's where it starts getting difficult. This is where it gets tough. This is why Jesus said this is the unique mark of the church age believer because it cannot be produced by the flesh. It can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. That's why it is one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, and we will study it when we get there on Sunday morning. So, there are certain elements 
to impersonal love that we can see in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's why we need to start, as we put these pieces of the puzzle together, by analyzing the characteristics of God's impersonal love for all mankind. Psalm 11.7 says, For the Lord is righteous, He loves righteousness. Because God is plus R, He can only love plus R. He can only have personal love for plus R. Man, however, is minus R. He lacks the absolute righteousness of God. So God cannot have a personal love for plus R because there is, I mean for minus R because there is no personal affinity between His perfect righteousness and man's relative righteousness. So God's love for man is what we call unconditional, and we will explain that word, and impersonal, because it is not based on personal attractiveness in the object of love, which is every single human being from the point of birth, because they have acquired or been imputed Adam's original sin, they have a sin nature, and they commit personal sins. We are all unrighteous. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So God cannot have rapport with us as unbelievers, and He cannot love us personally. So His love for the human race since the fall is impersonal. And let's define impersonal love. Impersonal love is a non-emotional, unconditional regard for the entire human race that does not require intimacy, friendship, attractiveness, or even acquaintance with the specific object of love. Why? It's not based on the object of love. It's based on who you are and who God is and what God has done for us. Ultimately, it is based on your love for someone else. It's not based on who, even in our best moments in terms of spiritual maturity, that gets flaky sometimes. It's based on who God is. He's the model. It is a non-emotional, unconditional regard for the entire human race that does not require intimacy, friendship, attractiveness, or even acquaintance with a specific object of love. Now, when we describe this, we use these two different adjectives, impersonal and unconditional. The impersonal, some people don't like that, and I can understand that. The first time I heard that, I thought that sounded awfully odd, impersonal love. But the word impersonal is used because it emphasizes the fact that personal knowledge and intimacy is not a factor in this kind of love. It is not required. We may not know anything about the individual, yet we are still required, mandated to love them. The second adjective, unconditional, emphasizes that this kind of love endures without placing conditions or qualifications on the object of love. In essence, this is saying that no matter what the other person does, my love for them is going to continue at the same intensity with the same characteristics, no matter how antagonistic they are to me, no matter how hateful they are to me, no matter how much grief they cause me, no matter how hard they make my life, 
I, I, it, it may be necessary for me to distance myself from them, from them for a number of different valid reasons, such as self-protection, self-defense, whatever. But nevertheless, I am still going to uh, treat them and deal with them in unconditional love. That's why this can't happen on our own. This can only be a product of the doctrine that is in our soul, and it takes time to develop the maturity to get to this point. Despite rejection, antagonism, hostility, physical or emotional attacks, even being taken advantage of on a continuous basis, unconditional love is continuously applied to the person. Okay, now, let's define love. Love is, as I've said already, it's not an emotion. It's not sentimentalism. It's not romantic, warm fuzzies. Love seeks the absolute highest and best for its object. Let me say that again. Love seeks the absolute highest and best for its object. Now, these two words, highest and best, are value words. Whose values are you going to use to define what is the highest and best for the object of love? You have two options. You have human viewpoint concepts of what's highest and best. And you have divine viewpoint concepts of what's highest and best. So if you are going to exercise the kind of love that seeks the highest and best, it it needs to be defined by divine viewpoint absolute standards. What happens when people try to exercise unconditional love on the basis of relativistic human viewpoint standards is they get themselves in a real trap. Sometimes this happens in a family or in a marriage, especially where there is a very unhealthy system of of physical bullying or, or some other horrible situation and they put themselves under a guilt trip that they have to stay there and continue to endure that even in the midst of a life-threatening situation. That's trying to use human viewpoint guilt manipulation. It's using a human viewpoint standard, and it is not following the absolute standards of Scripture. We're going to have to get into that and study that a little bit as we go through this. But when we define love as seeking the absolute highest and best for its its object, we must make sure that what we mean by highest and best reflects the divine viewpoint absolute standards related to God's grace, salvation, spiritual life blessing, and the plan of God for the believer's life is expressed in the Scriptures. Make sure you don't succumb at some point to relativistic human viewpoint systems based on emotion, sentiment, and personal opinion or pop psychology. Then you're really going to create a mess and you're going to be in a lot of confusion and have a lot of trouble. This is why when we come to the talking about love and the love triplex, that this is related to spiritual adulthood and not spiritual infancy. Let's go back and review a minute. God has provided for us, and we have extrapolated from the Scriptures, ten stress busters. These are ten problem-solving devices. First is confession. This restores us to fellowship with God, and we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, putting us in a position of strength uh, 
for handling the, pro- handling the problems and adversities of life. Filling of the Holy Spirit is problem-solving device number two. And then we have our basic problem-solving devices, the faith rest drill, where we mix faith with the promises of God. Grace orientation, where we develop humility and teachability. And five, doctrinal orientation, where we begin to align our thinking with the Word of God. This is basic to getting anywhere in the spiritual life, and this is how we move from spiritual infancy down through spiritual childhood. Then we hit the big transition period, which is what knocks out most believers. We hit spiritual adolescence, and the stress buster related here is personal sense of your eternal destiny. This is number six. We have that personal sense of our eternal destiny and we begin to realize, just as we did in our late teens and early 20s, we weren't going to live forever, that there was something that extended beyond the events of tomorrow. We needed to perhaps save a little money and we needed to do things that would provide for us a decade or two down the road. And that's what happens in spiritual adolescence. You move through that period and you learn that everything we're doing in life now impacts and has an effect on eternity. You are becoming, you are making decisions now that will determine who you will be in all of eternity. Then we come to the love triplex, which is personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. Then the crowning element is the last, which is inner happiness or sharing the happiness of God. Now this is the framework, and we're focused on this. Because this is essential if you're going to make it in through spiritual adulthood, through the various phases of a spiritual adulthood to spiritual maturity. And this is where you will begin to glorify God with your life to the maximum. Now, back on the subject of how God's divine and personal love is expressed to us. Let's remind ourselves of man's basic attitude toward God as a fallen creature. We are hostile to God. We are at enmity with God. We reject God. We are obnoxious to God. In our sinfulness and unrighteousness, we are odious to God, antagonistic to God, rebellious, hateful, resentful. We are continuously taking advantage of the gracious provisions of God in terms of air, water, food, shelter, the climate He provides so that we can have uh, agriculture and produce products that we can eat. All of this God has provided for human sustenance, whether believer or unbeliever. It all comes under the category of common grace. Yet the Bible says that man is at enmity to God. He's not just neutral. He is hateful, resentful, antagonistic toward God. Now, what characteristics do we discern in terms of how God operates towards hateful, resentful, antagonistic, rebellious creatures. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one-of-a-kind Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. So we're isolating eight different characteristics that describe the kind of love God demonstrated to us at the cross 
And this is going to be added to our understanding of impersonal love and and unconditional love as not merely being an absence of mental attitude sins and having a relaxed mental attitude and having an attitude of graciousness, but it is going to have these characteristics as well. Point number one, it is initiating. Initiating. God's love initiated the solution. It wasn't man that initiated the solution. It was God's love. God is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He has known all the knowable from eternity past. And way back here, in eternity past, God the Father devised a plan. It's an eternal plan called the eternal decree of God. And in that plan, God initiated a perfect solution to the human problem. Initiation means that God's love took charge to provide the perfect solution necessary to restore the relationship that would be broken by Adam's original sin. God's initiating love took place billions and billions of years ago through antecedent grace. Now, what is antecedent grace? The word antecedent refers to that which is prior to, that which precedes. And this refers to the initial acts of God's unmerited favor in outlining the plan of salvation. Antecedent means that the acts of God were going to be based on His unmerited favor. Man would not have to earn God's love. It would be freely given and bestowed on man after the fall. So the first characteristic is it initiates It does not simply sit back passively waiting to respond, but it initiates, takes action. What kind of action? Point number two, aggressive action. It asserts itself with confidence and boldness. Why? Why can impersonal love assert itself with confidence and boldness? Because it does not operate from a position of weakness that is threatened by rejection. See, the problem with personal love is if our personal love is based on conditions of acceptance and intimacy with its object, if that object of personal love rejects us, and there's that element of contingency there, then we will feel rejected and hurt, and so there's always that tendency to want to hold back a little bit in terms of self-protection. But we can be aggressive with impersonal love because we're not trying to curry favor, generate approbation, or find security in the response of someone else. Because of God's omniscience, God knew the entire problem, and on the basis of that, He provided everything necessary to resolve the problem. So because our strength is in the work of God, who He is, and our relationship to Him, then our relationship with other people in terms of love can be aggressive because we're not looking to them to meet any of our needs. We're relying upon God and that puts us in a position of strength and so we can operate with confidence and boldness. Point number three. It is characterized by humility. Humility is based upon grace orientation. Humility does not seek its own personal glory, but takes on the attitude of a servant to do whatsoever is necessary 
In the case of God, it included incarnation, the voluntary restriction of the use of divine attributes in order to fulfill the plan of God. It involved sacrifice. It involved the undeserved imputation of human sin in order to solve the problem of sin in the human race. Remember, the suffering Jesus Christ encountered on the cross was more intense, more agonizing, more excruciating than any suffering, any rejection, any heartache, torment, or pain that you or I can ever, ever imagine, much less suffer. I don't care what your circumstances, I don't care how hard your background is, it doesn't matter what your parents did, it's not that I'm not being compassionate, I'm just explaining the realities. No matter how hard your past life might have been, no matter what the failures were, no matter how people might have abused and treated you, it's nothing compared to what Christ went through on the cross. We can't even imagine what He went through. And He was sustained through the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that is our example. Because Christ could do it in His humanity. He didn't survive on His deity. He survived in His humanity. By reliance upon God the Holy Spirit, we can too. He demonstrated for us that these principles, these stress busters, work and will handle any situation. So there's humility there. Fourth, intensity. If it didn't have an emotional, emotional connotation, I would use the word passion in the good sense. There is a, a strength to that word. Intensity means that there was a zealous determination on the part of God to achieve the goal of salvation and to overcome all obstacles. A zealous determination to achieve the goal of salvation despite all obstacles. Since God is omnipotent, He is able to accomplish whatever is necessary to fulfill His perfect plan for the human race. Unconditional, impersonal love has an intensity about it. Fifth, it is faithful or steadfastly loyal. Now, our loyalty is not, in terms of our impersonal love, it is not to the object of our love. It's to God. God's loyalty is to His own character, to His own integrity, to the promises that He made to man in terms of salvation. And God strongly desires for all men to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. God is always loyal and faithful to His promises and never goes back. He never says, well, that's just too much for my grace. I'm just absolutely fed up. You've gone too far now. It's all over with. I'm going to throw away the whole thing. God is loyal to His promises and He has solved the problem completely for us. Sixth, consecration. Consecration means that it is set apart for the purpose of God's glory. That is why we have impersonal love for all mankind, not just to solve our problems, not just to make life easier, not just because it's mandated, but because it glorifies God. It exemplifies in us the impersonal love 
that God has, the perfect love that God has for all mankind, and it brings glory and honor to Him. Jesus Christ, in terms of God's impersonal love for all mankind, Jesus Christ was solemnly set apart for the purpose of being the exclusive means of salvation for the church. And as such, Jesus Christ is loyal to the plan and purposes of God, and He set Himself apart despite all obstacles and distractions to provide salvation for every human being. And then secondly, His goal is to bring every believer to maturity in Christ. Now you may exercise your volition negatively and go into rebellion, but God, but the plan and purpose of Jesus Christ is to bring you to maturity. Seven, dedication. Dedication. Dedication means that Jesus Christ committed himself to the task of service, sacrifice, salvation, and sanctification despite the pain and suffering that it would bring him, despite the rejection, the hostility, and the enmity. He dedicated and committed himself to the task of service, sacrifice, salvation, and sanctification. And then the last adjective here is devoted, which means to give or apply one's time, attention, and self entirely to a particular activity, cause, or person. The priority for Jesus Christ was to go to the cross and to endure the suffering in order to pay the penalty for our sin. Now, these are the words that we, the adjectives that we have that define and describe the kind of love that God demonstrated in sending His Son to the cross and the kind of love Jesus Christ demonstrated by going to the cross. It was a love that initiates. It's not passive. It's a love that's aggressive. Characterized by humility, it does not seek its own, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. There is an intensity about it. It is steadfastly loyal. Our impersonal love is loyal to God the Father and to Bible doctrine. Consecration set apart to the purpose of fulfilling God's plan. Dedication and devoted. Now we look at those words and now we need to connect them with adjectives that we picked up in Leviticus chapter 19. Now, if we go back and look at what we learned in Leviticus 19, we connect with that an absence minus mental attitude sins. Also, respect for privacy, private possession, ownership of property, a Prohibition of murder, uh, absence of slander, and a respect for all men despite their physical deformities, handicaps, or unlovely physical demeanor. Now, if we put all of that together, we have a picture of unconditional or impersonal love that is 
on human terms, impossible to fulfill. And yet we need to understand what those characteristics and qualities are because it is mandated of us to exercise that kind of love in order to resolve personal testing. Now, let's go back to James and see what we're talking about in James chapter 2. What James is describing is a people test. James 1, we saw that as believers, as we advance to spiritual maturity, we go through evaluation testing. We get the word evaluation from the Greek word dakimion that is found in, in James 1, 2 through 3. Translated approval, dakimion, approval. It means evaluation. We go through evaluation testing in order to evaluate the doctrine that is in our soul and that is necessary in order to advance us to spiritual maturity. James 1.4, let endurance have its maturing result that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So we go through evaluation testing. Now there are four categories of evaluation testing. First of all, there is thought testing. Secondly, people testing. Third, system testing. That's when you get a letter from your friendly Internal Revenue Service and they invite you down for their loving, kind, gentle conversation in order to discuss with you your accounting practices. Then you will encounter system testing. Thought testing, people testing, system testing involves your all kinds of systems. Wherever you work, your employer, those who you work with, that's the system. It involves going down and, and getting your vehicles registered at the Connecticut Department of Motor Vehicles. A subcategory of system testing is bureaucratic testing. I've enjoyed going through that this year. Bureaucratic testing, the fourth category, let me see, we have thought testing, people testing, system testing, and the fourth is disaster testing. Now, James is using a people test as an illustration here of application of doctrine in James chapter 2. The people test involves a guy who comes into the assembly who has been oppressing them. In modern psychobabble, we would use the term abuse. This guy is abusing the sheep. He is antagonistic to God, antagonistic to doctrine. He is a blasphemer, according to verse 7. Do they, that is in reference to this category of, of people, the wealthy here, it's not just that their financial status is not the issue, it is the way they utilize their financial status. Do they not blaspheme the fair name, which of course is Christ by this time? It wasn't initially that believers were called Christians. It wasn't for a few years. And those in Antioch were the first ones who were called Christians. And James says, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So what you have is oppression and rejection experienced by these believers 
that he is addressing. And they're going to handle oppression and rejection by what? Well, the way they've been handling it is by a lot of false humility and kowtowing to the oppressor when he comes into church and puts them at the position of honor and treats them with respect and takes the poor guy who's just uh, come in off the street and hasn't had a good bath in a while and puts him in the back. And that's the guy who's advanced to spiritual maturity and has a lot of doctrine in his soul. And so their whole value system is all distorted. And they've got a test. It's a people test. The issue is oppression and rejection. And instead of applying doctrine to the situation based on grace orientation in utilizing impersonal love for all mankind, which is a basis also for fairness in all of our dealings with people as well as objectivity, they are operating on subjectivity and they are using uh, their human viewpoint sinful uh, practices and approaches to the problem in order perhaps to alleviate any other future oppression or abuse. So now we have to sit back and review the issue of testing here. We've got a testing situation. Testing can come in the form of adversity or prosperity. A test is an opportunity for us to show what we know. You go When you were in school, for those of you who've been out a while, maybe you can remember it, just sort of shake the cobwebs loose. You went through a series of lectures or instructions for a week or two, and then you were given an examination, a test, in order to give you the opportunity to show how well you learned the material that you were responsible for. And that's what a test is in life. A spiritual test is that we've learned doctrine, and God is now going to put us in a situation so that we can take that doctrine that is in our soul and apply it to that situation and then advance in spiritual maturity. So the test is either going to come in the form of adversity or prosperity to give us the opportunity to apply doctrine so that we can show that we are persistent and advance towards maturity. James tells you right up front where he's headed. He doesn't wait till the end. <coughs> so let's review adversity and stress. One, adversity is the outside pressure of <coughs> on the soul, and stress is the inside pressure. Adversity is the outside pressure of life. Stress is the inside pressure of the soul. Point number two. Adversity is what the circumstances of life do to you. Stress is what you do to yourself. Point number three, adversity is inevitable. You cannot avoid it. Adversity or prosperity, both are inevitable. You will have good days and you will have bad days. You will have good things happen to you and bad things happen to you. Adversity is inevitable. Stress is optional. Point number four, stress is always the result of sin nature control of the soul and failure to handle adversity or prosperity through the gracious provision of the ten stress busters. Stress is the result of sin nature control of the soul. You immediately hit the test, you go on negative signals, and immediately you yield to the temptation to solve that problem through your own human viewpoint skills, and now you are under the control of the sin nature.
Point number five. The stress busters allow the believer to face any situation in life and remain poised, stable, and in control of the situation no matter how horrible or agonizing without giving in to the sin nature. When you give in to the sin nature, then you have stress in the soul and fragmentation. Point number six, sin nature control means arrogance and the operation of the three arrogant skills either in overt arrogance or disguised as pseudo-humility. Now, the point that we're looking at is this. When you encounter the test, be it adversity or prosperity, and we're just going to use the word adversity, you can substitute prosperity if that's your test right now. And that's the situation. Something happens in terms of adversity, and you, are, you experience rejection. We're talking about people testing, so let's talk about relational issues. You experience rejection. Now, you have a choice at that point. The trouble is, if you're three years old and your parents are rejecting you or you perceive that they are rejecting you, you see, some children already have a very strong sin nature. They're operating on arrogance. And when mom and dad pop their hand because it's getting too close to the fire and it's disciplined, done in love, that child thinks that he's not getting his way and he perceives it in terms of rejection and reacts in terms of hostility. That child will be on the way to being a sociopath if that pattern continues. So your parents need to have a little perception into how your children's sin nature functions. And we're going to see that in the next couple of weeks. We're going to take apart the sin nature and analyze how we let our sin nature and, and the lust patterns and the trends the area of weakness and the area of strength, how they work together in a dynamic unity to solve problems for us instead of the Word of God. So we can respond negatively and let the sin nature take over, or we can respond positively by applying one of the ten problem-solving devices or stress busters. We're not going to have time to get into a lot of detail, so we'll continue to build our case. In a people test, okay, we're beginning with rejection. Maybe it's something you experienced in childhood. It could be rejection, real or imagined. Maybe there was a loss of a parent through physical death. Sometimes a child will interpret that as rejection. Maybe it's a divorce. Children often do not know what's going on. The parents get divorced and the result is that they think that they're They're the cause and they start blaming themselves. That's how they respond to that particular situation. Um, Perhaps it's a result of of bullying on the part of the family. I'm going to use the word bullying instead of abuse. Words are important. And words carry with them baggage. Now, if this is the 19th century and I use the word abuse, it would be a very good word to describe certain things. But we live in an age. We always have to be sensitive about this, how words are used and the baggage they bring with them. If I use the word atonement, all of a sudden images come to your mind. You know the word atonement is never used in the New Testament? Not once. It's used in the Old Testament, but it's not used in the New Testament. But we use it today to describe the work of Christ on the cross, and with it, we just automatically bring along all the Old Testament baggage with it. Well, abuse today is used in a psychological context. 
And whenever you hear about sex abuse or child abuse or parent abuse or employer abuse or abuse ad infinitum and ad nauseum, it brings with it the whole psychological framework of victimization, which is very characteristic of our age. And the key attribute of victimization is that if we're victims, we want to transfer responsibility. I'm a victim. That means it's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. My mother dropped me on my head when I was a kid. Uh, my teacher never really understood me and, and caught me talking, and I was just trying to find out the answer to the problem, so they always put me in the back of the class, and I couldn't hear well, so now I, I can't read or write and I'm a dummy. But it's always somebody else's fault and it never has anything to do with our own volitional response to the situation. Now, the trouble is, when you are two years old or three years old or four years old, you are not volitionally conscious. Nevertheless, you are volitionally active. That means at that young age, you're already choosing how you're reacting to adversity in your life, and you're beginning to learn how to be an expert at using the arrogant skills. First arrogant skills skill is self-absorption. You begin to focus on how you're hurt and how you don't get your way and how you're mistreated and how your brothers treat you or how your parents treat you or how somebody else treated you, and you're focusing on the hurt, on the pain, on the difficulty, rather than more than anything else. And how unfairly and unjustly you're treated because you're such a wonderful person. Self-absorption leads to self-justification. We begin to rationalize our behavior and justify our actions so that we are now right in our own eyes without regard to any other system of values or absolutes. We justify ourselves so that we are the one who's always right. We're just never understood. Nobody ever gives us the right attention or pays attention to us or really listens or understands, and it's always somebody else's fault. That's part of the sin nature. Adam demonstrated it. Eve demonstrated it. They started passing the buck at the fall, and we're still doing it. Self-justification continues and produces self-deception. We now are divorced from reality. We have justified ourselves through rationalization that it's really one way instead of the way it truly is. Now we've deceived ourselves as to the nature of reality. We become divorced from reality, and now we're operating on a false perception of reality. Reality is distorted. Therefore, the soul starts to become distorted. And as this intensifies and goes through a cycle, it continues to feed on itself. And the longer that goes in a person's life, the more it produces fragmentation and distortion in the soul. So somebody ends up at the age of 20 or 25 and we wonder just how screwed up they got. How did they ever get that way? Well, they've been practicing the arrogant skills in reaction to all sorts of adversities and supposedly unjust things, real or perceived, all kinds of rejection all their life, and then they're in a tremendous amount of pain and misery, 
And so now they're trying to deal with all that pain and misery. So they look to drugs, they look to alcohol, they look to sex, they look to all the various details of life in order to try to bring a little excitement and pleasure into their life so they don't have to deal with the pain and misery that's there as a result of years and years of bad decisions and soul fragmentation. We're getting a real pathology of how people fall apart and how people become the victims of their own self-induced misery. See, the reality is we're all victims. We're victims, number one, of Satan. Victims, number two, of living in the cosmic system. That's Satan's world system that provides all the principles and rationales for making everything in our sin nature justified. All rationales. And then third, we all have a sin nature that we inherited from Adam. It's all Adam's fault. It's not my fault. It's Adam's fault. Let's just blame Adam and let's have a pity party and go home. Now the trouble is that all of, all of our arrogance focuses on this self-absorption. And we compare ourselves to one another. Somebody says, well, you just don't have it as bad as I had it. If you knew what I grew up with, if you knew what my parents did to me, and and it may be very bad, it may be evil, it may be horrible, there may be sexual abuse, there may be all kinds of horrible stuff going on. They're saying, if you just knew what I put out, and you didn't have to deal with any of that. Let me give you a little analogy and see if this communicates. We've got four people. We're going to have a, a contest between eight people. The first person is going to be a middle-aged, we'll just say a white male adult. Middle-aged, he's got a fairly athletic background, still plays racquetball three or four times a day. And so this is this guy. He's got plus A. He's got a few athletic tendencies. Second person here is going to be a young Hispanic female, 20 years old, absolutely no athletic background whatsoever, And then the third person is going to be a physically handicapped, PH, physically handicapped teenager. Never been able to engage in any kind of athletics whatsoever, has no muscular skill or muscular coordination. Fourth person is going to be a young, strong, interjected um, black man from down in the in the ghetto, and he's been playing street basketball and stickball and whatever else all his life. And I mean, this guy's working out at the gym 15 hours a week, and he is cut, and he's buff, and I mean, he's got it all together. Now, these are the first four. Then you've got Joe Willie Namath. Then you've got, let's say, Roger Staubach. Johnny Unitas. Who, who else? Who's, uh, who's, I, I got a mental blank here. The Denver Broncos. What was that guy's name? Like I care. <laughs> who? Elway. Yeah. John Elway. Okay. These guys are on the team. Okay. It's a contest between these eight people. They're going to have to throw a football and they're going to have to put that football into a one gallon galvanized bucket. Now, they're all looking at each other, and you can just imagine that these four people up here are looking at each other and saying, man, we don't have a chance. We're so far behind the eight ball. I mean, this guy, he's physically handicapped. He can't even throw two feet. This guy said, well, I can probably get down there, but there's no way I can come close to the bucket. 
Some of these others have various degrees of skill, and they're all focusing on comparing themselves to one another. Trouble is, they've got to stand on the corner of 5th Avenue and 42nd Street and the buckets at Hollywood and Vine on the other side of the continent. Nobody can make it over there. It's impossible. You see, our problem is we're focusing on each other in relative comparisons and saying, my problem's a whole lot worse than your problem. And in comparison to the sin problem that we're all dealing with, the differences between the person who has the horrible family background and all the abuse and everything else, in, in terms of absolutes, there's just a minor, minor difference between them and the next person. Because sin is the major issue that destroys everybody's life. And it doesn't matter in one sense, in an absolute sense, what our relative differences are. Because we're all so far behind the eight ball, it's an impossible task. We can't do it. That's why the only solution is the grace solution. And we must get our eyes off of self and on to what God has done for us. Now, we'll stop there. We'll come back next week. We'll start looking at the relationship of the grace learning spiral to the application of doctrine. Once we get that in place, then we're going to start looking at how the sin nature is manufacturing human viewpoint solutions and how that's destroying our lives. And that's going to take probably most of April. So, And it's going to relate in many ways to what we're getting ready to study in Galatians 5. So that's just kind of a teaser and a trailer to get everybody in class all the time. Because you need this stuff. I mean, this is vital to our spiritual life. If anybody thinks that the reason I want everybody here is just because of numbers or everybody needs to be here, you're kidding yourself. What we're going to be covering in the next six weeks is crucial to your spiritual life. And if you can get a handle on this, I mean really get a handle on it and implement it in your life, it is going to revolutionize your whole spiritual life and your whole approach to what you do on a day-to-day basis. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for Your Word, how clearly it describes for us our human condition, our fallen condition, and our absolute and utter helplessness. How we are all victims of sin and of our own negative decisions and it is ultimately not our environment, not our parents, not other people, not adversity. It is our negative responses based on the sin nature to the situation in life that generates the problems and the self-induced misery that we have. And the only solution starts at the cross and it continues through learning, metabolizing and applying Bible doctrine. So Father, now as we continue our study, we pray that we might Uh, focus our attention on these doctrines as we go through life day to day that we can think back on them and meditate on them, contemplate them that we might understand how these things relate to our lives, that we might apply them. And we do this under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.